Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, gas prices north of a buck seventy a liter in Vancouver. Will it translate to the rest of Canada? And can Alberta turn off the taps to BC? Plus, business leaders are worried about aging demographics and if they'll have enough people to fill jobs in the future and are urging leaders to think about immigration policy to help that. And we talked to leader of the Ontario Green Party, Mike Schreiner, and the wave of green that seems to be going across the country. Are they replacing the NDP as Canada's third official party? All that coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, in Vancouver, gas prices sitting around buck uh, seventy, or certainly have been up that high. Uh, is that what's going to translate for the rest of us? Uh, the Trans Mountain can Alberta just turn off the taps like that? These are all some of the questions we want to ask Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst for GasBuddy.com. He's with us now. Thanks for the uh, time, Dan. Much appreciated. Good to be here for Friday afternoon, Scott. So, uh, remember the days when the speed limits were down to 55 in the United States? What's the difference between life then and now? Well, I think that's really uh, the response to the uh, OPEC uh, cutting off or uh, embargoing their oil, I guess is what we refer to it as. And after the Yom Kippur War of September of 73, I think that sort of kicked in, 74 and 75. Not only did you see, uh, uh, of course, speed limits uh, drop, you also saw rotating days for gasoline based on your license plate. Uh, it was quite a quite a time. And, of course, uh, it changed the policies of many countries, especially European countries, who said, you know what, uh, we're not going to be subject to this anymore, so we're going to raise taxes 50%. So even if you drive the price of fuel up uh, through an embargo, people won't feel it as much. So... It also explains why their taxes are much higher and, of course, why we're in some regions of the country getting a lot closer to them. All right. Uh, lots of speaking of taxes, lots of complaints over uh, Ford's uh, attempt to put the cost of carbon tax and such on the side of pumps. Now, I remember there was a time and I don't know if this is still the case where there, it was the petroleum producers of the, the gas stations that said, hey, you guys are all complaining about the price of gas. We're going to tell you what the taxation is. Are those still on the pumps? Yeah, some of them. Esso was the one that uh, provided them. Of course, some other companies went with a different model. But the stickers on pumps aren't new, uh, and they've been around for better part of 20 years. Um, and, uh, you know, they uh, they certainly gave just a snapshot of what the prices were because we know that uh, profits uh, for refineries change. You always get a chuckle looking at those things. Refinery profits were like 1%, which I think that was definitely not the case. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, it's the companies that uh, decided to put those things forward to let people know uh, what they were paying for. And I think, uh, you know, call it for what it is. I mean, some people are going to be upset by this because they like the policy. At the end of the day, if you could separate those who like the policy from those who don't, you'll find that those who love the policy don't want to see the stickers. And those who have some concern about it, like me, <laughs> have no trouble with transparency. Uh, so for uh, I guess it really depends where you're coming from. As long as you get those that three hundred bucks in your uh, in your uh, bank account uh, when you file your taxes, uh, which of course comes up next week, uh, then everyone's happy. But uh, come back and talk to me in six or seven months, maybe eight months, when you start getting your heating bills and you start seeing grocery prices rising. 
it'll be a lot more than the 307 bucks you think you're getting. Uh, hang on, because we'll come back to that. But getting back to the stickers, and, and, and again, I remember when these came out years ago, and it was all about transparency. So why is there such a fuss being made about how them breaking down the cost of a liter of gasoline? And again, I remember it was the gas companies who were tired of being yelled at from the cons- from the consumer saying, you're jacking prices. It's like, no, 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 it's not us. It's government taxes. And it was the oil companies that put them on the side of the pumps. So what's the difference between that and what's happening now? Yeah, and I made that point to uh, your colleague at another station in Toronto, uh, your sister station, Global, uh, in Toronto, and I I don't know what people would be upset about if it's a question of transparency. If they think it's politicking, well, then why would they not have a problem with the multi-million dollar federal government ad telling us what a wonderful thing it is that uh, by stiffing you for four cents, five cents a liter, that uh, you'll suddenly be able to hear loons chirping in your backyard. Uh, you know, <laughs> the fact <laughs> is the federal government is uh, is using the same tactic, but it's costing you money. Uh, this is simply a sticker, and if anyone's got a problem with a sticker on a pump, uh, then I think uh, many have got to understand that they voted to get rid of uh, carbon tax, which is five cents a liter. That was done. You're now getting that five cents reimposed. And I think it's up to people who I often bump into, who are totally out of uh, out of uh, the loop in this, uh, do not know. Oh, I didn't know it was five cents a liter. I'm to be surprised. Uh, and they certainly don't know what's six cents a liter for diesel. And they certainly don't know that it's going up two and a half cents every year. So, you know, from my perspective, uh, if you're going to slap uh, a political tax on, uh, on people, then uh, at least when you vote politically to remove a tax and it's suddenly slapped back on, yeah, I think people should be reminded of that each and every time they fill up because there's a cost... Uh, to uh, to proceeding with this, and you know, everyone wants to talk about the wonderful things this will do. Prove it. I still don't believe it's going to be revenue neutral, and I certainly know that the GST that they collect on the four point four two cents a liter uh, is not rebatable. And again, I, the, the 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 issue for me with this is like they already do this, and the whole idea is why would you not want to know what is involved in the price of a liter of gasoline? This is already there. Yeah, I think I find when I'm encountering some people, uh, seeing certainly out in Western Canada, when you tell them uh, you don't have a pipeline that can send out more gasoline, so that's why you're paying a lot more. They try to find any excuse not to uh, not to deal with the facts, and I I, uh, I try to I have to deal in the world where I have to be right all the time, and I have to make sure my facts stand up. If not, then I should back off. But they really don't like a spotlight being placed on what they're really trying to do, and that's to reinvent, re-engineer. And at the end of the day, let everybody know this is not an environmental policy or a tax. This is a revenue tax. This is something designed to raise more money for governments and to allow them to take some of that money, uh, which they say will be revenue neutral, and spend it on their pet projects uh, for you know the folks that are out there spending a lot of your time, as we saw provincially. Same cast of characters, same play we've seen before from the McGinty win liberals who along with uh, our friend Jerry Butts and others who are now firmly ensconced in Ottawa, working for uh, strategic and key ministers from energy to environment to the Prime Minister's office himself. These are the same architects that gave you unaffordable hydro rates. And uh, they prefer you not talk about it. And uh, if it's divide and conquer, so be it. But uh, I'm, you know, good on the Ford government for actually having the courtesy to tell me and remind me uh, that I'm being stiffed every time. And I didn't have the political will to say to them, I voted for you because of that. Because I can tell you, no one or very few that I knew in 2015 voted for a nebulous phrase, price on pollution. Yeah, if you're going to dump sewage in the water, you're going to put a smokestack up and build, you know, bilge into the air and 
create problems for the land and landfill issues. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That to me is pollution. But saying that you're causing your uh, price on pollution, which has to do with CO2, and you're not absolutely convinced, nor is it a scientific fact that CO2 is uh, is leading to uh, these kind of uh, climate uh, changes, and that every time we have a flood, a hurricane, or anything like that, it's automatically deduces a little bit more carbon in the air. I mean, come on, guys. This is, this is going from the sublime to the ridiculous. So in regard to uh, the carbon tax, uh, as the government has said, and, and uh, I believe uh, it, was, it came out again today, that, this, uh, that the majority of people would get uh, the majority of their money back, at least 90% of their money back, um, and, and, and sort of verified what the government was saying. How does that play? What, what's what's the issue then? What's yeah, the problem? I, I, I'm playing devil's advocate, Dan. Or yeah, no, what's the not. problem I here? I think the Canadian press story was wrong. Uh, it wasn't the PBO didn't say that. The parliamentary budget officer pointed out that much more shocking to me was that the numbers at which you are going to be uh, rebated or you're, that's going to cost you is a lot higher than uh, than I thought. Um, the difference between that 307 bucks that some people will get, not all, and what it's going to cost average families is about fifty dollars difference. So you better hope that it's not a colder winter where you're going to use a lot more energy. You better hope that grocery prices don't go up because neither of these uh, accounting procedures came anywhere close to the impacts, uh, the indirect impacts uh, of, uh, of a much higher inflated price for diesel and for uh, gasoline and for home heating fuel like propane and natural gas. Uh, you know, you, you can't just sort of say you have a one-size-fits-all and say, well, this will... You know, an average circumstance in which the temperature remains constant all year. Of course, there are variations, and there are significant ones. We've had two or three winters now that are much colder than the past, and I don't think that the way in which it has been measured is is in any way accurate. However, I've seen a lot of media headlines today, and I couldn't figure out where it was. There was a Canadian press story in which the headline sensationally said, yep, they're right, it, it, it matches, and people get back more than what the government's putting out, which, by the way, in of itself doesn't make sense. Nowhere in the uh, in the uh, discussion by the PBO did that actually come out. So, you know, I think the Canadian press owes it to uh, media, you guys, uh, to uh, to make sure that what they said in the body of the uh, of the story actually matches with the headlines. So, what the are we missing? Headlines are written by very different people than who write the uh, the actual story. So, what? That's true. Uh, so, what are we missing here? What did the parliamentary budget officers say that we're missing? I don't think they said anything that we didn't already know, except that they revealed more information that I think was a little closer to the what it's going to cost and what you're going to get back. Um, this has been sold as a, a you know a big boon, no problems. You're going to make a lot of money. Uh, you know, it's probably going to, the amount of, of pain this is going to cost is going to be negligible, and uh, you know uh, more people will get back more money than what they uh, what they actually put out. I still think that the, the the news, I mean, the forecast is one thing, but the actual practical numbers won't be achieved for another year until we've at least had you know a chance to see and look in behind and say, well, how much did people get? Who got and what didn't? Or you know, parse it down so that eighty percent get more and twenty percent wind up uh, paying the the rest of the bill. The PBO numbers, I think, uh, from what I saw, um, did reveal something that I thought was uh, very uh, enlightening, and that's that it did suggest, as I mentioned earlier, that to what you're going to get back. And what you're going to be paying out is almost very similar. And I take that to mean that uh, since they can't predict, as I can, where future energy prices are going to go, uh, they may be uh, they may be uh, uh, 
like the federal government, lowballing it. So what direction in terms of energy prices, all assumptions are are already out the window. So that's uh, this year. What about next year and the year after? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, not everybody's going to sit back and calculate and say, okay, I, I got two hundred and twenty bucks because my family isn't the ideal side, but I'm going to wind up paying two fifty. So I guess I'm one of that twenty percent right. of people who will wind up paying more. But it's the indirect costs that they cannot possibly tabulate. You know, as I mentioned many times, everyone when they come out and say, well, you know, inflation's up and grocery prices up, you'll never hear, uh, you know, the uh, the, the commentary by those who obviously have a bias saying, oh, it has something to do with energy costs. Oh, no, they'll, they'll walk around that. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting. They, and they will not take into account the added costs of things we can't possibly calculate. Uh, uh, carbon leakage, when a company leaves or buys its product elsewhere, um, you can't possibly uh, ca- ca- uh, tabulate or calculate what future inflation is going to look like if you have uh, circumstances where uh, the Canadian dollar depreciates. Note this week we lost a penny, penny and a half in value. Uh, those That just adds to the cost of living. Now, that is that directly re- connected to uh, the tax? To some extent it is, because it makes the cost of energy much more expensive than, say, our competitors. Uh, and so while you, you're saying, here, we're going to give a little bit, we're going to take a little bit, at the end of the day, you better make sure that it's based on, you know, the uh, the, the test model that you're using, the uh, you know, the, uh, the, the the widget that you're using uh, has to be absolutely perfect. There can be no deviations. My sense is that there's going to be a lot of deviation and there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot more suffering than people had imagined. And certainly those who are advocating this, because at the end of the day, uh, it's not as transparent as I would have expected. It certainly wasn't politically blessed by Canadians. Hmm. Um, we we uh, talked this week about gas prices in Vancouver, how they're, uh, they've shut up as high as a dollar seventy uh, a liter and such. Um, is that going to spread to the rest of the country? How high will they go over the summer? No, that won't spread to the rest of the country. Right now, we're like looking at a collapse in oil and gasoline prices because uh, many people uh, assume that uh, problems in Libya, uh, Venezuela, uh, problems um, uh, when the U.S. sanctions all of U- Iranian oil uh, will have absolutely no consequence whatsoever. We're in- embarking in a very interesting time in which the uh, illusion of U.S. shale production is somehow giving people the impression that uh, you know uh, the world is chock full of oil and there's no big deal, no problem. There is a serious problem coming down, and I think we're looking at much higher prices than what we're paying today. Now, I've got to tell you that since in the past two weeks, uh, gas retailers in Hamilton, in the Greater Toronto area, have all shaved or removed almost six cents on the liter of gasoline permanently from their retail margins. So they're operating on extraordinarily uh, uh, skinny margins, and that's tempering the, uh, the the idea that I had earlier that we'd be seeing a dollar forty-five uh, quite commonly throughout our regions here throughout the summer. I think 140 is a new reality. 125 might be the low end. 140 being well, 140 to 142 being the high end. Uh, but again, you know, everything's off the table uh, if, of course, we wind up uh, with a hurricane or with some kind of uh, unforeseen geopolitical event. Uh, many who are listening, Dan, will say, "There you are, not buying into the whole uh, climate change thing." And uh, you know, here we are talking about uh, you know realities in weather and what's happening in Ottawa and what have you. How do you answer that? Well, I've been in Ottawa for many years. We've had floods. Uh, I've lived in uh, near Minden, Ontario. I know there's floods there. It happens every three or four years. Look, we can't use every 
incident, meteorological incident, as evidence that something's going wrong with the weather. There's nothing static about our weather. And if you can somehow think that you can tax at such a low level to make CO2 diminish to such a point that you can compensate for what's happening in Russia, India, United States, uh, uh, you know, take your pick, China, uh, then by all means, fill your boots. But at the end of the day, this is a, a, a rather unnecessary and very costly exercise that I think at the end of the day may make people who are believing this believe that somehow they can change the weather, but you can't. And frankly, I think we've become far more sensitive to how these things, uh, how these things occur. Every time there's an event, a hurricane of some type, it's the first thing, it's almost knee-jerk. Uh, warm weather, climate change. Cold weather, climate change. Wet weather, climate change. Dry weather, climate change. Look, folks, <laughs> get with the program. Uh, these things are we have a population that uh, is, it dwells in areas that uh, that are far closer and far nearer to where there can be the the possibility of damage. Uh, we see this because of the amount of uh, population uh, building in a number of areas, uh, floodplains and whatnot. Uh, look in the southern; just go across the lake. The United States are worried because uh, there may be floods on the southern uh, edge of Lake Ontario. Well, everyone knows that they were building well into uh, what is the 10, 20, 30, and 50 and 100 year mark. For, for water lines. So I think we have to put these things in context and not panic that because something's happened in our time and in the past couple of weeks that these things are happening uniquely and for the first time. Uh, I'm worried about the hysteria here and the alarmism that goes with it because I think it's, uh, we're getting carried away. It is, uh, it's, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, we, we do need to look at the environment, but I don't think this should be the one that precedes everything else in this country, including affordability and proper environmental stewardship, which this country is all about. So, last question, can Alberta really turn off the taps to B.C.? Well, they can say that they want to send more oil down there uh, as opposed to gasoline, and that's within their their, their constitutional uh, right. right. They can say, look, rather than putting gasoline in there, we're putting oil in there, and the gasoline that we have, well, uh, or all of it, or some of it, will simply have to go by rail uh, or by truck. Uh, they can make that decision. They can decide what goes down that pipe. Uh, they can't go and say we're doing it as a matter of revenge. Right. But they can certainly say if we can't get our oil to market, you're stymieing us, then we're going to find any way, any means we have at our disposal. And they have that that right. So yet you don't. You, I mean, you look at it from the from the perspective of those who've. Uh, dangled this issue before. They really do have the ability to do this and are likely to carry out one way, shape, or form. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic Analyst for GasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Some big business leaders are worried that aging demographics in Canada as baby boomers get set to retire, uh, they urge an influx of workers uh, may be needed to fill the gap or will be needed to fill the gap. And as uh, we come into an election, they want to remind everybody that we need these uh, these people coming into the country in order to fill the gap by those that are retiring. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. I understand you're not in Ottawa, but that's probably a good thing today. It sounds like it's pretty tense there right now. <laughs> I'm just finishing up my uh, holiday in Hilton Head, South Carolina, in the temp- 
temperature's perfect. All right. Well, we thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, we've all heard that the baby boomer population, the largest segment of our population at this point, uh, gradually aging, working their way through to retirement, uh, and, and, and soon they are exiting the workforce. Are we heading for a severe shortage? How is this going to change things from how they are today? We are. Um, this has been studied by multiple agencies in Canada and outside. Um, I've read the studies from Finance Canada. Uh, they were done under the Harper government. They've been reconfirmed under the Liberal government. Uh, they've been done by StatsCan, uh, OECD, and every Western country, we are not an exception, are facing an aging crisis. And just to explain for your viewers what that means, let me use one metric uh, because I think it illustrates it vividly. In 1965, there were approximately seven workers working and paying taxes for every retiree who was not working on pension, who, by the way, pay less taxes because your income goes down in retirement. Mm -hmm. Within 10 years, we're already down to, I think it's three right now, to one. And within about 10 years from now, we're going to be down to 2.5 workers for every retiree. And as I tell my young people who are graduating, because I only teach fourth year classes, these are students graduating in the next three months and going in the work world. The really good news is there's going to be job shortages, which are going to drive wages up for you young people entering the workforce. That's the good news. The bad news is, is we're going to sock it to you with taxes like you've never, ever seen in this country before hmm. because the boomers, that's me and my generation, in retirement are going to consume gargantuan amounts of health care. Mm -hmm. How do we know? Because CAIHI, Canadian Institute of Health Information, set up by Paul Martin a few years ago, it's a statistical agency. It's not doctors. It's number crunchers, and they collect enormous amounts of healthcare data in Canada. And they broke down how much the average Canadian consumes by age, 0 to 5, 5 to 15, mm -hmm. 15 to 30, and so forth. No big surprise. Over 65, our, our consumption of healthcare per person starts to go through the roof. And by the time we're up to 80, it's around 25 thousand dollars per year per person and the number of seniors in this country is going to double from 12 percent of the population today to about 25 percent of the population in about 15 years plus everyone's living longer recognize that 25 percent number mm -hmm. that's the average number in florida which is the oldest population in North America, one in four over 65. So we can, of course, sock it to our young people with more and more and more taxes, or and or we can say let's bring in a lot more young people to from abroad who meet our qualifications to fill the uh, shortages. And, and as we speak, Scott, today... 2019, there are 500,000 jobs that are not filled in Canada where they can't find workers. 
What will this do? We know what the situation is now. We talk about the shrinking middle class. Uh, we talk about the manufacturing uh, industries leaving and such, and and a employment uh, uh, an employment group that's that's uh, a group of employees that's very much in transition. How will that all change ten, twenty, thirty right. years from now? Uh, well, let's. Will we still have those the, problems? The, the wheat from the chaff. Um, this um, urban legend of the middle class collapsing and declining and disappearing is one of the most fraudulent urban edge legends I've ever seen. I've studied the data over and over. I study it all the time for the papers and the research I'm doing. I've just published a peer-reviewed article with a colleague on the alleged pension crisis and the alleged pension savings crisis. It's not true. Our middle class have never been so prosperous. Our seniors have never been so prosperous. Now, to answer your question, am I denying that the economy is in huge transformation? Of course not. We are manufacturing, which, of course, there's a big uh, part of this in your area. If you go back to 1970, it was about 30% of GDP and about a third of all the jobs in Canada. Today, nine, 2019. I know what you're saying, Ian. Way I, down the road. I right know what now, you're saying, Ian. Speak, but there's many millennials the out there. Manufacturing is down to about 12%. But there's many millennials so, out there that will say that the baby boomer generation has way more than they do. They'll never be able to afford these homes. They'll never be able to, to right. live the same lifestyle that their parents did. Many have said this is the first generation that won't be living the same lifestyle as their parents. So how can all of that be if that's the case? Well, it's not the case. That, that's the point. Yeah. It's not the case. I've got the data. Believe me, hard StatScan data. And for those who really don't believe in StatScan, I've also got the aggregate CRA data. That's the tax people. Where do they get the data from on wages and incomes? Why, that would be from each of us filing our tax returns. Now, do they give me individual data? Of course not. That's confidential. But they publish aggregate data. And just while I'm on this, because I just finished a paper in Toronto delivering it last week, showing these slides, we are Canada. We have, depending on which metric you use from OECD, we're about the eighth wealthiest country on the planet Earth measured by average income per person. We're tied with Germany. And Germany is not a poor country. It's the richest country in all of Europe. Let me just talk about the millennials. One of the things that's tempering what they're saying. It's partly true. They're not, when you're young, you're poor. When I was 22, 25, 30, all I had was debts and no money. Yeah. It was ever thus. As they get older, the debts go down, the assets and the value of the house go up. And Scott, let's throw this out here. This data has been documented over and over. There is a 1.5 trillion wealth transfer that's going to take place over the next 20 years yeah. as the boomers die off. Mm-hmm. And the stats show that the vast majority of parents give the money to their kids. It's a rare person who says, I'm cutting my children out of the will. Let me I'm ask you this, Ian. Let me ask you this, Ian. Many have, have said that, that you know, the, once the, the baby, boom, your baby boomer population starts to pass away, it will be the biggest, and I've heard this before, the biggest uh, uh, transformation of wealth that we've ever seen. Will governments realize that? 
and know that they've got a 20-year period to just suck it away from us and, and, and increase taxes. You know, like they always say, we're increasing the taxes of those who are the richest. But when we all die and sell, boy, oh boy, when we cash out at death, there's a lot of money there. Uh, is the government going to go after that baby boomer money? That's a fascinating question. Um, when, I, when you look at the wealth, and by the way, StatsCam publishes data every three months. They call it, it's called the National Household Balance Sheet. And it breaks down all the debts, and you, that's where you hear about the $2 trillion that Canadians owe. And people say, oh my God, we're broke, we're debt, we're all going to die. They always forget about the $13 trillion of assets that we individuals in Canada possess. So if you take the $13 trillion minus the $2 trillion of debt, we have $11 trillion net worth or $300,000 average per person. Now, young people listening to this will say, don't give me that. I don't have 300000 Answer, of course you don't. Mom and dad have to have it. And they're going to pass it on to you. I'm exhibit A. I have two kids. They're getting my house when I die. And my house is worth quite a bit of money because I bought it 35 years ago. Actually, it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> yep. So, uh, uh, getting back to uh, to immigration and this whole study and such, uh, how will life be different for uh, the twenty year old, the twenty to twenty, say the twenty to thirty year old? How will life be different for them twenty years from now? I have actually talked about this every September in my very first class with my incoming, well, my fourth year students, but when they come to my first incoming class. I tell them that you, they have never, uh, they're, they're graduating into a world where they have nothing but opportunities ahead of them. And it's only going to be bigger and better. The technology is becoming more powerful. The prosperity in Canada just goes up, up, up. I only wished I was 40 years younger hmm. because of the, 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 what I just described to you. Our affluence, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of standard of living. We, you know, we have first-class education system, first-class health care system, uh, one of the most highly educated populations in the world, and there's going to be shortages of workers, which means all these young people are going to have all kinds of choices. And as the boomers leave, and they're leaving by the day, in every organization yeah. I talk to, yeah. they're just going out the door. I well, mean, there was a recent parties every week in the university. There was a recent and study. I, people I, are replacing all of them. And I, re- I remember the reading a stu- I remember reading a study uh, in regard to the, the energy industry and the hydro industry in Canada. They're they're looking for something like twenty thousand workers over the next few years. Precisely. This is the scary thing, and I mean this very seriously. So, because people may say, "Boy, you're painting a really rosy picture." Yeah, but the downside is, who's going to look after all these boomers? Yeah. Okay, a lot of them are going to live on their own because we're healthier and healthier. No question about it. But they're twenty, going to be twenty-five percent of the population. That's one in four, and a certain percentage of them, if only ten percent of that one in four, need to be housed in. Um, um, extended care type homes, where are we going to get the people and the resources to look after all of those uh, people that have maybe dementia and Alzheimer's? This is the scary thought about the future. It's the shortages 
of skilled labor in every area of the economy and society, and we're, we're not going to be able to fill all these jobs. That's the scary thing about the future. So what's the message here from business in regard to leaders heading into the next election regarding immigration? I, I'm glad we had time to talk about this because I agree with Goldie Hyder one million percent. I personally know Goldie Hyder. He's a very bright guy, very admirable, and I have nothing but respect for him. But he was pointing to the poll that showed some Canadians are expressing concern with immigration. I've read the polls carefully. And I want to make this important distinction that Goldie Hyder and his, and his colleagues did not make. Canadians support legal immigration. People who go through the hoops and apply through the procedures and fill out all the forms and wait and eventually you know, get accepted to come to Canada. Canadians do not support people who jump the queue or come into Canada illegally, including new Canadians who see this as cheating. And so two years ago when Mr. Trudeau sent out tweets saying, come on into Canada, you know, you got that terrible Trump guy down there, and encouraged people to walk across the border, in other words, not going through proper channels, I saw the polls on this, and about 70% of Canadians disapproved, including liberals and NDP. So my point is, yes, we need immigration. We need lots of immigration, but we've got to support legal immigration and not encourage people to jump the queue or come in illegally, which is what it... So there's Canadians are nuanced on this. The the uh, prime minister, as you said, very very opening, uh, very open, standing up and saying, especially when things got tough in the United States, come on up, come on in through here, uh, right. you know, which again encourages the immigration that we do need. But how does that change people's perception? Giving uh, by him giving the impression that the floodgates are open and and, and it's a free for all for everybody. Does that not tarnish people's view of immigration? Yes, it does. That that's my point. I thought it was most unfortunate that Mr. Trudeau did that because it, I, I, I've said it at the time. This is going to corrode or undermine support for immigration. Yeah. And, and there's a difference between controlled immigration or coming in through the front door because those people apply and they must meet. I'm sure most Canadians know this. They must meet certain standards. They must have certain minimum standards of education and competency to be accepted. They're not just accepted, you know, everybody who applies is brought in. When you deal with people coming across claiming refugee status, you do not control their qualifications. You are accepting them purely because they're refugees, whether they have any education whatsoever. And yes, we are compassionate about refugees if they're legitimate refugees. But I think the debate uh, the, in Canada was, or that there was a perception by a large number of Canadians, that these people coming in with suitcases from the United States, which is not a third world country, were not legitimate refugees. So we have to distinguish between, there's three categories, very quickly, in the Act, there's three categories of refugees. There's economic uh, applicants who come in because they're qualified. There's refugees who come in because they're escaping persecution in their home country. And then there's the third one, the family reunification category, where new Canadians already in Canada can sponsor someone else to come in, the brother, sister, mother, father sort of thing. And so what I'm talking about, the support, we need to make sure that we maintain 
confidence in our system, in the integrity of the system, that we're not encouraging people to come in through the back door illegally, which does undermine support for our system of immigration. And I remember when uh, John McCallum was in charge of this file and uh, they were talking about bringing in 25,000 and such and and once they started arriving he was almost giddy about it and, and it almost seemed very laissez-faire as like let's bring in another 25 and you know it's just the way he said it it sounded very irresponsible and again you don't want to sound any immigrant for saying that my goodness I'm a first generation Canadian my mother was an immigrant but but on the other hand you oh, have to my father <laughs> you, you know you have to you have to at least appear that you're doing it responsibly. Exactly. And, and I, as you can tell by now from my own conversation, I'm a strong believer in immigration. At the same time, I don't believe that we can, because it is a sensitive issue, and, you know, there's people that are unemployed in Canada and they say, well, what about me? You know, that sort of thing. That we have to be very careful that we balance the, the, you know, the views and needs of exi- people in the country with our need for immigration, and that we've set up rules and procedures. We do. We have an Immigration Act of Canada, and we have to make sure that people go through the proper channels. And, and just to distinguish what McCallum did, those were legitimate refugees from Syria. Whether we thought they were too many, too few, that's a separate debate. I'm distinguishing those people from people who walked across the border with suitcases wearing yeah. suits from the United States. Mm. Uh, the polls showed that most Canadians thought they were not legitimate refugees when you can just walk across the border with your suitcase. That's where I'm going. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thank you so much for the time, especially on vacation. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, lots of, uh, you know, we like to talk politics on this show and uh, lots of, of chatter over the last several weeks on how the political landscape in Canada is slowly changing. And we saw this again uh, this week when uh, I was talking to a university professor in uh, Prince Edward Island about their uh, provincial election. And it's not very often uh, we in the rest of the country really pay that much attention to elections in other provinces, let alone in provinces uh, like Prince Edward Island, who are, well, on an island and uh, in, in, in a, small, a small example of the population. Uh, that being said, uh, what happened going into this election was the, the Greens were, were polling way ahead and uh, then in the end ended up forming the official opposition. First time they've done that in uh, in Canada. And the Liberal government falls, and there's a PC minority government that is uh, also uh, allowing the, or not allowing, as a result of, uh, the Green Party has formed uh, the official opposition, which is an odd pairing in its in itself. That being said, both leaders have said that they are going to try to work together and come to uh, some sort of agreement issue by issue and, and hopefully get things passed. To talk more about, so in all of this, um, you know, I found myself asking political experts, where, where, is, where is the Greens' opportunity here? Where is the Green window here? Uh, where do they fit into the political landscape? Is, 
is the Green Party becoming the next third option for Canadians replacing the NDP? These are the sort of discussions that people are having, at least, you know, the nerds that are hanging around, ta- uh, hanging around talking politics anyway. And so as we're, we're having these discussions, it's like, well, let's bring in Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Ontario Green Party. Who can best explain the party and what is happening now? Uh, so here is Mar- uh, Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party. He is with us now. Mike, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. My pleasure to be on. So how does it feel now uh, compared to how when you were first elected and, and, and the, the growing of this movement, especially with what you're seeing in, in PEI? How are you feeling about the growth of this party since you took your position? Well, I think we've seen a huge growth in the Green Party, and it's very exciting. I mean, as little as five, ten years ago, I think most Canadians couldn't even imagine a Green being elected at the provincial or federal level. And now you have uh, 16 Greens elected across the country, uh, holding the balance of power in a minority government in British Columbia, uh, a caucus of three in New Brunswick now, uh, you know, holding the official opposition in a minority government in PEI, of course, our historic breakthrough in Guelph. Uh, in the last provincial election, and then Elizabeth May, obviously, at the federal level. And, you know, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that Canadians are getting tired of politics as usual. They want a new approach to politics, and the Green Party's bringing a fresh voice, a new way of doing things. And I think one of the examples of that is what we've seen in PEI. I mean, if you look at Ontario, the animosity between, you know, the NDP and the Conservatives, the government and the official opposition here, it's just like hurdle insults at each other every mm-hmm. single day. And, you know, I just saw Peter Biebenbaker, the leader of the, the Green Party and PEI, and Dennis King, the you know, premier-elect leader of the Conservative Party, hug each other right yeah. before they went on to a radio show and then talk <laughs> about how they're going to try to collaborate, cooperate on an issue-by-issue basis. And I think that's what Canadians want. They want politicians who are going to put the people first, ahead of their own political party, ahead of political games, ahead of the BS, and just talk honestly with people about the challenges we face and the solutions around those challenges. So what's different in PEI? Why, of all places, is that where this has taken hold? Well, you know, I think we're seeing the green wave uh, rise across uh, the country, but I think, you know, in PEI there's some unique circumstances. Uh, you know, I know when I've been in PEI a few times knocking on doors, I mean, it's it's not like in Ontario where... You know, my riding of Guelph has the same population of the entire island of PEI. So, you know, when you're knocking on doors, it's a lot of very personal conversations. I mean, it's not uncommon for people to invite you to come in and have tea with them and have a very long conversation. And so uh, developing strong relationships is really important. Uh, And and I think, you know, Peter Biebenbaker, the leader of the PEI Greens, just has such an engaging personality. Mm -hmm. And I think Islanders are saying, you know what, we're tired of going back and forth between red and blue, and let's give another party an opportunity, and the Greens are presenting that opportunity. Uh, Do you think that this can only happen in a situation in a community like this where there is so much personal contact? Can this happen in the big centres? Can we get politicians to work together in larger centres? Well, you know, Scott, let's hope so. And, you know, I I think I'm, I'm hopefully I'm bringing a fresh approach 
uh, to politics to Queen's Park. I mean, I know I'm, you know I'm tough on the Ford government. I ask them hard questions. I'm out to hold them accountable. But I'm not uh, averse to voting with them when they put forward a bill that I agree with, and I've done that in the past. And I'm not um, averse to complimenting them when they do something that um, you know I think they've done well. And you know that that isn't something you see that often uh, in Ontario politics, and I would say federal politics in Canada. And so you know I'm hoping to bring a little bit of that uh, PEI uh, collaboration, friendliness, and cooperation. But yet still, you know, um, holding true to your values and your principles and ensuring that we hold the government accountable at the same time. I think we can balance that and have a more uh, collegial, collaborative politics with more decorum and integrity. Uh, Odd pairing having a PC minority uh, and an opposition that is green, as opposed to in British Columbia, where it's the Greens and the NDP. What about the pairing of conservative and green together? Well, you know, I know here in Guelph, I received quite a few votes from uh, progressive-oriented, maybe what people would call red Tory kind of voters, and I think part of that's due to the fact that, you know, the Green Party is not anti-business. We see lots of opportunities for uh, job creation and business investment, especially in the emerging clean economy, which is the fastest-growing sector of the global economy. I mean, even here in Canada, more people now work in uh, the clean energy sector than in the oil sands, as an example. So, you know, we're, we're a party that is, I would argue, fiscally responsible, socially progressive, and environmentally sustainable. And we'll talk about, you know, the need for urgent action on the climate crisis, while at the same time talking about how we can do that in a way that uh, creates jobs and leads to more business investment. Uh, I, I like what you just said there, uh, and I'll ask you to repeat that about being fiscally this, socially that, and environmentally uh, something else, because a lot of people are having a hard time deciphering where the Green Party is on the political spectrum. Do they just assume that you're um, uh, uh, farther left than the NDP? Are you somewhere between the NDP and the Liberals? Where are you in the political spectrum? How do people identify with the Greens? You know, Scott, I think we're just blowing up the left-right political spectrum, to be honest with you. I mean, that was a creation that came out of, you know, uh, 19th century politics, and we're now in the 21st century, and I think the world's too complicated to just put people on a linear left-right uh, spectrum. So that it depends said, on the issue. I, it, exactly. That's just it, Scott. It, it really does depend on the issue. So there are some issues that the Greens would be considered very left of center on, and there are other issues that I think people would look at us being uh, a center-right. And so I think Canadians are just hungry for a party that's going to be responsible with their money, that is going to be that is socially progressive, so that believes in social justice and human rights, and at the same time uh, is environmentally sustainable, want to protect our farmland, want to protect our water, want to address the climate crisis. And let me just put that in just one example for you that's really near and dear to my heart, is protecting farmland in Ontario. You know, that may be seen as a left of center, you know, green environmental issue, and it certainly is. At the same time, the food and farming sector in this province um, generates $40 billion to our GDP, uh, leads to over 800,000 jobs if you start from you know, input suppliers to farmers to processors to people who work in, in the food, food industry. And so why would anybody want to pave over the asset base, our farmland, that um, generates all that wealth and creates all those jobs. And so is that a left issue? Is that a right issue? I just think it's an issue that makes sense for the people of Ontario, our economy, and our environment. 
Um, can you be green and fiscally responsible? It appears that with the politics and the rhetoric we're hearing now over climate change and such, you know, people have a hard time, citizens have a hard time trying to find the facts because there's so much rhetoric floating around. <laughs> and many think that green cost will cost us a fortune. And fiscally, what other governments are trying to do, other parties are trying to do, isn't fiscally responsible. How do you, how do you balance this? Well, you know, let's talk about it in Ontario's context. So, you know, I'm the one politician at Queen's Park saying, let's cancel the previous Liberal government's uh, fair hydro plan. Uh, we're borrowing over $3 billion a year to take 25% off of people's electricity bills. And certainly we need to be providing some support, particularly people with modest uh, incomes. No one should have to choose between heating and eating. At the same time, you know, given the province's fiscal situation, should wealthy Ontarians really be receiving 25% off their electricity bill at the same time that, you know, we're cutting tree planting and, and uh, the environment budget and the children's services budget and, 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 and other areas? Uh, so why not get rid of that program, target support to the people who need it the most, and um, help reduce our deficit. But no politician at Queen's Park other than me seems to have the courage to have an honest conversation with people about that issue. The Conservatives, when they were in opposition, I mean, the Finance Minister, Vic Patelli, trashed the Liberals on that issue all the time. And then now that they're in government, they're keeping that. That's the program that really threw Ontario's budget way out of whack. And so, you know, let's get rid of it and start being fiscally responsible. And and so to me, that's an example of, you know, just being honest with the people of Ontario about how we can um, help uh, save money, but do it in a way that doesn't hurt essential public services. So... Um, uh under a green government, would we go back to the high electricity prices of the Kathleen Wynne government before she refinanced it and, and punted it down the down another 30 years? Well, you know what? Uh, hydro prices in Ontario are going to start skyrocketing in the mid mid in about five or six years yeah. if we don't solve the problem. So instead of putting a Band-Aid on it and punting it down the road five years, Let's solve the problem. So one of the things I've been calling for, and I'm hoping the government's going to take me up on this, Scott, is a independent public review of the cost of all forms of electricity generation as we move forward so we can make an informed decision about what's the best way to generate power in this province. And then the other thing we've been calling for, which, you know, to me is just this, my dad taught me this on the farm, you know, the best way to reduce your electricity costs or any of your, your energy costs is to use energy more efficiently. And Ontarians are some of the least efficient users of electricity of any people uh, on earth. And so why not invest in helping people save money by saving energy, retrofitting your homes, uh, retrofitting your businesses, uh, making making our homes and businesses more energy efficient. That is the lowest cost solution to solving people's individual um, energy costs, but also our collective energy costs as a province, because it means we then have to spend less money on new sources of generation. So uh, in the end, and again, people are complaining now uh, about the carbon tax and, and, and how it's increasing the price of, of gasoline and this, that, and the other. Uh, the government saying we're going to get all that back in a rebate or most of it uh, anyway. Um, w- is the answer here just jacking up prices, jacking up prices until we somehow change behavior? 
Because, we, you know, many experts have said in order to do that, you got to jack it up a lot more than four and a half cents a liter. And perhaps what that will change is not so much habit, but the political party is people will be outraged. Well, Scott, here's the question I have for folks is, do you want the government telling you how you need to reduce your uh, carbon footprint? Or do you want to f- do that and make that decision on your own and make it in a way that makes the most sense for your business or for your family? Uh, I think we should utilize market mechanisms to do that. You as an individual, you as a business owner, your family can make those kinds of decisions. But in order to do that, we have to put a price on pollution. Otherwise, there simply won't be the market signals to do it. And if you rebate all the money back to people, it actually can put more money in your pocket and create an incentive for you to even reduce your carbon footprint more because it means even more money in your pocket. That's how markets work. That's why so many conservative economists have been calling for a revenue-neutral price on pollution, rebate the money back to people. That's mostly what the federal government is doing. I have some complaints about the way in which they're doing it, though, is instead of rebating it back on your taxes, I think they should literally send a rebate check to Canadian families, just like um, is done with the child benefit check, or just like the McGinty government did with the HST rebate checks. I'll never forget you know, all the protests that were happening at Queen's Park when the Liberals brought in the HST, and the minute people started receiving their HST rebate checks in the mail, it was like, well, okay, this isn't that bad. And I think that's exactly how Canadians um, will respond to putting a price on pollution. And if you look at most polls, people are saying, you know, we support putting a price on pollution, provided you rebate the money back to families, so then we can decide the best way to uh, lower our carbon footprint as a family. Uh, the Liberals have made this a, a central pillar of their election campaign, and and we're hearing a lot about climate change. Uh, some are feeling a little fatigued of all of this. Is there yeah. is there too much fear-mongering going on? Um, you know, we hear we've got three to four years to, to make these changes. Uh, I had an expert on the other day. We've got three to four years to make these changes, uh, and if not, we'll, we'll start to see a, a very dramatic change. We certainly know what we've done in Ontario and other parts of Canada, and Canada, of course, considered on the leading edge of all of this. If we're having such a difficult time doing this in the next three to four years, and, and I, you know, I, I hate to use the argument, well, they're not doing it, so why should we? And, and I'm not trying to make that point, but how are we going to save the world in three to four years with the Chinas and the Indias and the Russias? I mean, where are they on all of this? Well, on a per capita basis, we actually um, use, we, we emit yeah, we more, use more. emissions more. Than, than those countries do. So, you know, we, we have a long ways to go. But that, being said, sure. but that being but, said, well, but that yeah. being said, that, that stat's a little bit of a red herring in the sense that we're a very, very small population over a very, very large country, and that mm-hmm. still only stacks up to less than 2% of the pollution or the, or the carbon yep. uh, emissions that are coming from the rest of the world. In other words, Canada's not killing the, killing the world as much as India and Russia and, and China are. So uh, how, do you, yeah. how do you square this? Two things I would say is, so one, the cost of the climate crisis is escalating. Uh, last year alone, the province of Ontario, uh, $1.2 billion in insurable losses. Uh, the Insurance Bureau of Canada is saying, you know, we have to start addressing the climate crisis. Otherwise, you know, they may even have to uh, stop insuring uh, some businesses and homes in certain flood-prone areas. 
Brace Bridge right now. Oh my gosh, my heart goes out to all the people in Muskoka, Ottawa region, and other places where flooding is happening in the country. You know, Brace Bridge had a hundred-year flood in 2013, and here we are six years later, and they're having another hundred-year flood. Uh, last August, in uh, one day alone in Toronto, uh, $80 million worth of uh, infrastructure damage. So if we don't address this, it is going to cost us big time. So we want to avoid those costs by reducing the the worst risk associated with climate change. And on the other hand, Scott, we want to take advantage of the economic opportunity. You know, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, so we're not talking, you know, some radical economist here, uh, saying that the investment opportunity in the clean economy is a $7.5 trillion annual opportunity. I want this province to lead. I want us to be a first mover. Um, you know, we're seeing this here in my riding in Guelph. We have so many uh, clean economy companies, everyone from, you know, helping companies save energy and save money to um, clean energy, uh, food innovation, water innovation. Uh, let, let me jump in here. As growth my, in the global economy. Let me jump in here, Mike, because we're short on time. So at the end sure. of the day, um, is this going to be a tremendous sacrifice for Canadians? Are we, you know, because we watched our, our our quality of life increase over year after year after year after year. Are we going to go backwards? Are we going to have to go backwards on this before we can go forward? Well, you know, I, I've had an expert yeah. on that said, you know, we all got to buy smaller houses. We all got to live in smaller, uh, live in smaller houses. Um, you know, buy smaller vehicles. La da 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 da. Is it? Is this going to be a major pain? A major sacrifice? A major? You know, no pain, no gain here. Well, I don't see it as a major sacrifice. I see it as one, if we don't act, then we are going to have to make some major sacrifices. Your you know, homes being wiped out by floods, drought affecting food, uh, extreme weather events for sure. Uh, you know, you know, there are lots of things we can do. We can invest in public transit and have a world class transit system which actually will probably make a lot of people's lives better because they won't be stuck in gridlock. You know, I can operate my electric vehicle at one-fifth the cost of my old combustion engine vehicle. Um, I retrofitted my home, and it's so much more comfortable to live in now, and my energy bills are lower. So, yes, it will require change, and it will require a transformation of our economy. Does it take a reduction in quality of life? I don't see it as a reduction in quality of life. matter of fact, I see it as an opportunity to enhance quality of life, less air pollution, better public health outcomes, uh, less gridlock on our highways. There's some real opportunities here to actually improve our quality of life. Mike Schreiner has been with us, leader of the Ontario Green Party. Mike, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. Oh, anytime, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.